Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. Having fun getting connected this week. Uh, and great to have you along with us as usual. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Got a lot to talk about today, including answering the question, is ecumenism solemn nonsense? We will also look at an underlying problem with the, uh, the synod on synodality and also um, just, you know, kind of the uh, going from the ridiculous to the sublime, we'll talk about the uh, gospel of the upcoming feast this Sunday, which is the Feast of the Transfiguration. But uh, to begin, one of the, the worst aspects of today's, you know, rainbow alphabet soup <laughs> coalition that my wife has dubbed the wokeness monster is its effect on friendship, uh, particularly friendship between men. A, uh, uh, today, a truly close relationship between two men is instantly labeled bromance and can hardly escape the specter of a bluntly homoerotic interpretation, you know, rearing its ugly head. And hardly a single television commercial goes by without the spectacle of two men and or two women behaving in a manner clearly meant to suggest that there is something more than friends. Uh, even the homely and familiar sight of a, a pair of girls or young women walking hand in hand has lost its innocence. And it's a crying shame. Of course, the real object of this attack is the one thing that stands between our culture and the abyss, which is the Catholic faith. And it is an amazing aspect of our faith that God Almighty desires not our servitude, but our friendship. It is not so in other faiths. Uh, in Islam, man is God's slaves. In some religions, they consider God to be indifferent to humanity, or some embrace a pantheon of many gods with all too human, petty, even evil attributes. But in Christianity, both divine friendship and human friendship are an essential part of life. The Old Testament offers the example of the close friendship between David and Jonathan, where Jonathan has truly had David's best interests at heart, putting him even before himself. The book of Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, in chapter 6, tells us that a faithful friend is a strong defense. He that has found him has found a treasure. Nothing can be compared to a faithful friend, and no weight of gold and silver can countervail the goodness of his fidelity. A faithful friend is the medicine of life and immortality. So, the, uh, hence the biblical expression, faithful friend. And the foundation of such friendship, that is, mutual trust and dependability, makes it the most valuable possession in the world. A faithful friend helps us to endure the sorrows of life, uh, helps us to along the path to God. And that passage from Sirach is balanced by warnings against the fair-weather friend, who lets you down when the going gets tough. Superficiality in apparent friendships is a concern that appears often in the books of the Old Testament. Sirach chapter 6 says of such friends, when you are prospering, he is your second self and lords it over your servants. However, if you are brought low, he will turn against you and avoid any contact with you. In other words, a real friend is not revealed in prosperity, but in adversity. Also, according to several verses of Ecclesiasticus from chapters 19 through 25, a trusted friend is one to whom you can open your heart because of the harmony that exists between friends. Be faithful to your friend in his poverty, and you can rejoice with him in his prosperity. Blessed is he who finds a true friend. From his face I shall not hide myself, and if evil befall him, I shall support him. Now, Ecclesiasticus assumes that friendship is the foundation of human society and is appropriate and desirable for everyone. 
The problem is how to maintain friendship, and the solution is fidelity to your friend, come what may, and in union with the friend in God. In Sirach 6, six we read that a faithful friend is the elixir, the elixir of life, and he who fears the Lord will find him. He who fears the Lord directs his friendship aright. For as he is, so also will his neighbor be. So number one, your relationship with others depends on your relationship with God. And number two, as my mother used to say, to have a friend, you have to be a friend. Now in the New Testament, Jesus' words at the Last Supper in John 15 contain a central statement of his regarding friendship. You know it well. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that he laid on his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. That's interestingly, the only two people in the New Testament referred to specifically by the word friend regarding Jesus are Lazarus and Judas. And the episode of raising Lazarus expresses something theologically important about the Christian life. Those who are Jesus' true friends are called to a certain death in this life that will lead to a resurrection in this life. And it's an illustration of the universal truth that he who seeks to save his life by running from the cross will lose his life. But those who embrace the cross in Christ will rise from the dead, like Lazarus, in this life. This is our calling as friends of the Lord. He has come that his friends may have life and have it in abundance, have it to the full. But it is a life that comes from a death, comes from denial. It's like the episode with his friend Lazarus signifies, you know, in our case, not literal death, but dying to ourselves. But true friendship is, of course, reciprocal. And so we have to respond to Jesus' call for friendship. For his part, God will never cut off the means of our reconciliation, and this is shown so tenderly with Judas. Even when he comes to betray Jesus, our Lord does not greet him like, you dirty traitor, you know, you rot in hell. No, Jesus addresses Judas as friend. And what follows are among the saddest words in Scripture, almost universally mistranslated in modern English. Most modern Bibles render it, friend, why are you here? The Douay has it right, friend, whereto art thou come? So not why are you here, not, not what have you come for, but what have you come to? It is an opportunity for his friend to examine himself. It, it's a final offer of grace. Jesus never closes off the possibility of reconciliation and true friendship. This is our model for friendship with others. Uh, St. Gregory the Great said, a friend is the guardian of one's soul. St. Augustine said, let your charity principally be displayed as a love of friendship, which should be gratuitous. So not just freely given, but, you know, above and beyond. You should not have, he says, or love a friend in order to receive something from him. If you love him because he gives you money or some other temporal commodity, <clears throat> you love not him, but the goods he gives you. A friend should be loved gratuitously for himself and not for anything else. And here's the point. If the rule of friendship encourages you uh, to love man gratuitously, how much more gratuitously should you love God who commands that man be loved? 
Nothing is more delightful than God, he says, but you do not worship him gratuitously if you do so in order to receive something from him. Worship him gratuitously and you will receive him. And Teresa of Avila remarks that since we are self-centered by nature, uh, we would not seek to love anyone except, at least for fir at first, for selfish reasons. But, but that's a start, she says. And then as love deepens, we come to love the other for their own sake, hopefully to the point of acquiring a love completely devoid of self-interest. A great modern example of this is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. It was revealed that Mother Teresa lived a very long dark night of the soul. That is, she lived without spiritual consolations and almost total darkness for most of her spiritual journey. And one of her greatest enemies, the uh, late atheist Christopher Hitchens, may God have mercy on his soul, remarked that the revelation of her darkness just went to show that Mother Teresa was, quote, only a confused old lady who had, for all practical purposes, ceased to believe. See, her darkness, according to Hitchens, proves that God was absent from her life. And you imagine that, this uh, merely confused old lady with no faith, but without whose compassionate love, tens of thousands of lepers would still be in the gutters of the cities of the world, or long dead, because there aren't any atheist leper colonies. See, the reality of the situation is much different. Mother Teresa's one great motivating desire was to love as Jesus loved her. She used to say, it hurt Jesus to love you and to love me. In becoming man, God was spit on, mocked, crowned with thorns, and put to death in the cruelest possible manner. Now, why would he choose to go through all of that? What motivated him? Of course, you know the answer is love. Total, gratuitous love. So Mother Teresa received no spiritual consolations, and yet she did it anyway. See, that's the depth of love that we are called to, both in our relationship with Christ primarily and in our friendships with one another. If the love is genuine, it will bring increase to your love of God, and your love of God will increase your love for your friend. And genuine friendship is important, really essential, to growing in holiness. And that is our vocation, to, to, to sanctify the world, sanctify the secular order. And we do that by sanctifying ourselves. It's one of the great challenges of, of pursuing sanctification, that you may have to break false friendships that are an occasion of sin. Thomas Aquinas said, knowing whom to avoid is a great means of saving your soul. Healthy friendships will support and encourage your relationship with Christ. And that's no nonsense. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. This coming Sunday is the Feast of the Transfiguration in both the Ordinary and Extraordinary Form Liturgies. And the gospel for the extraordinary form is taken from St. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. At that time, Jesus took Peter and James and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them. <clears throat> and his face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as snow. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elias talking with him. 
And Peter answering said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. And as he was yet speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and lo, a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And the disciples, hearing, fell upon their face, and were very much afraid. And Jesus came and touched them, and said to them, Arise, and fear not. And they, lifting up their eyes, saw no one but only Jesus. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now in these few verses, the divinity of Christ is proven, firstly by the testimony of his heavenly Father, who at the Transfiguration declares for the second time that Jesus is his beloved Son, uh, the first being at his baptism. Secondly, by the teaching of the apostles, who were eyewitnesses of his divine glory. And this glory became visible at the transfiguration and was witnessed by the three apostles. Therefore, St. Peter was able to write 35 years later in the epistle for this Sunday's traditional Mass, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, but having been made eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory, this voice coming down to him from excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And this voice we heard brought from heaven when we were with him in the holy mount. And then thirdly, our Lord's divinity is proven by the prophecy of his resurrection, when he forbade the apostles to tell what they had seen till after he had risen from the dead. So Jesus, and, and with the apparition of Moses and Elias, or Elijah, proves Jesus to be the Messiah to whom the law and the prophets pointed. Uh, they paid homage to him as their Lord, who had fulfilled the law and the prophets, and who by his impending death would release the holy men of the old covenant from limbo, you know, from Abraham's bosom, and admit them into heaven. The voice of the Heavenly Father proclaimed Jesus to be the founder and lawgiver of the new covenant the teaching of which all men are bound to believe, and the commandments of which they are bound to obey. Hear ye him. This narrative, therefore, reveals, reveals Jesus to us as the Savior and the fulfiller of the law and the prophets, the divine founder and lawgiver of the new covenant, the redeemer of mankind in all ages, and the center of the history of the world. And next we see the contrast uh, of Mount Tabor and Mount Calvary, or Golgotha. Now, this glimpse of glory was meant to make such an impression on the three apostles so that they wouldn't lose courage or worse, lose faith when before too long they would see their Lord at the hour of his passion and in that fearful state of suffering when, as Isaiah prophesied, there was no beauty or comeliness in him. In fact, the transfiguration a contrast with the crucifixion in every respect. In one, we perceive Christ in, in majesty. Uh, on either side of him, two great saints. We hear the revelation of God, and we see the disciples, uh, you know, uh, falling in ecstasy. And in the other, we see our Lord uh, marred and disfigured. On either side of him, two thieves, abandoned by God, and with him his sorrowing mother, the grief-stricken John, the weeping women. And we also see that if 
one passing glimpse of their Lord's glory could fill the apostles with such rapture, how unspeakable must be the happiness of heaven, where the blessed see God face to face and rejoice in the companies uh, of the saints and angels. Truly, to quote St. Peter, it will be good to be there. And Moses and Elijah, of course, were the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Moses representing the law or the Old Covenant. You know, he wrote the Pentateuch. He predicted the coming of a great prophet in Deuteronomy 18. And Elijah represents the prophets who foretold the coming of the Messiah. Moses and Elijah's presence with Jesus confirmed his messianic mission to fulfill God's law and the words of the prophets. And just as God's voice in the cloud over Mount Sinai gave authority to his law in Exodus 19, so God's voice at the transfiguration gives authority to the words of Jesus. And verse 4 says Peter wanted to build three tabernacles for these three great men to show how the, the Jewish festival of shelters, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was fulfilled in the coming of God's kingdom. And you know, Peter certainly had the right idea about Christ, but his timing was off. Peter wanted to act, but this was the time for, for adoration. Because Jesus is more than just a great leader. He's more than just a good example, more even than a great prophet. He is the Son of God. And when you understand this profound truth, you realize that the only adequate response is worship, to fall on your face. And so when they heard the voice of the Father proclaim, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. Scripture says they fell on their faces in, in a sign of total surrender and adoration. Now, as Catholics, we are blessed that we can worship Christ truly present in the tabernacle and offer our adoration today. And that's no nonsense. And speaking of which, on Saturday, the 2nd of September, from 12 noon to 3 p.m. at the Sacred Heart Chapel, you are invited to join me and Terry Barber and Mary Danielle Barber to offer prayers of reparation for the sanctification of the priesthood. Now, you know that every priest and bishop is called to be Alter Christus, just as Peter, James, and John called to be another Christ. And, you know, we, the laity, feel called to make reparation for those clergy who fall short of that calling. And also, perhaps especially for the sins of injustice that are committed against faithful priests, especially those who are experiencing persecution and have been or are under threat of being canceled, as they call it, for their loyalty to the deposit of faith. So September the 2nd is the first Saturday of the month, and you know Our Lady of Fatima appointed first Saturdays to be days of reparation. But this Saturday will also serve to announce the restoration at Sacred Heart Chapel of a long-standing devotion in the Church. Uh, technically, it's called the Act of Reparation to the Wounds of Jesus and to the Holy Eucharist, also known as the First Thursday's Devotion. Now, this was part of the revelations granted to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque for making reparation to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And since the 19th century, it has been offered specifically to make reparation for the sanctification of priests. Now, the, the community at Sacred Heart Chapel already has a holy hour on Thursday evenings to pray for their priesthood, you know, in commemoration of the institution of the priesthood on Holy Thursday. But going forward, the first Thursday will be a holy hour of reparation for the sanctification of priests. And that's all priests, including the bishops and even the Pope. Now, in the near future, uh, VMPR plans to produce an online video to make the case for individuals and groups to make the first Thursday devotion in their parishes or even in their homes. And we'll also be posting a PDF outlining the devotion and offering some suggested prayers. 
Now that's all coming soon, and but it all starts on September 2nd from 12 noon to 3 p.m. at the Sacred Heart Chapel. And you know, to make reparation means to make amends or to seek to repair the harm caused by your sins. It involves both internal contrition and external actions to reconcile with God and, and others. But reparation isn't just about making things right with others. It's, it's about restoring our relationship with God. Through acts of reparation, we express our sorrow for sins and, and seek to make up for the offenses we've committed against God's love. But there's more to reparation than that. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1460, it is also possible to make reparation for the sins of others through prayer, penance, and acts of charity. And while we cannot directly atone for the sins of committed by others, we can offer our prayers and sacrifices to God, asking for his mercy and grace to be poured out upon them. See, by uniting our sufferings and acts of reparation with the sacrifice of Christ, we participate in his redemptive work. Our prayers and acts of reparation can have a positive effect on the conversion and salvation of others. Through our intercession and offering, we cooperate with God's grace in bringing healing and reconciliation to those who have sinned. It's important to note that making reparation for the sins of others does not absolve them of their personal responsibility, uh, and it doesn't replace their need for individual repentance. Each person, that includes you know, bishops, priests, and the Pope, each one is accountable for their own actions and must seek forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But we can unite our, you know, we can make our reparation for their conversion. And, and what does it all mean? Well, St. Paul said in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my own body I am completing the sufferings that still must be undergone by Christ for the sake of his body, the Church. So, you know, while we cannot directly atone for the sins of others— we can offer prayers and penances on their behalf. And this way we participate in Christ's redemptive work. And through our participation in Christ's redemptive work, our reparation can have a positive impact on the conversion and salvation of others. And that includes priests and bishops. And that's no nonsense. Okay, coming up, we're going to be talking about uh, ecumenism, and, and then we're also going to talk about, uh, I think, the flaw in the system regarding the Synod on Synodality and these various other initiatives that have been undertaken uh, by the hierarchy in, in recent, well, in recent time, recent months and years. Um, you know, early in his pontificate, Pope Francis had an interview with an atheist journalist, an Italian named Eugenio Scalafari, in which he rather famously said, proselytism is solemn nonsense. And, uh, and more recently, in January of this year, he said the most serious sin that a missionary can commit is proselytism. And these are just two of, of many such quotes. Uh, he has a, a long history during the, the 10 years of his pontificate of censuring uh, proselytism and those who would be tempted to commit proselytism. Now, you know, the, the professional papal apologists are quick to explain that Pope Francis is not talking about proselytism in its original sense, which is just convincing people of the true faith. Rather, they say he means pressuring people to convert. He's talking about bullying people. He's talking about using deceptive means. 
Uh, he's talking about threatening people with damnation if they don't convert to Catholicism, that sort of thing. And, and certainly it is an accepted axiom that there should be no coercion in religion. Uh, St. Augustine famously said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Right? Forced conversions aren't real conversions uh, at all because conversion to Jesus must entail a free choice. But it begs the question, why is there a need for the Pope's ongoing battle against a virtually non-existent problem? I mean, who in the post-Vatican Church is bullying people and converting? Can you name a single example? Or is it possible the Pope means something else? We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Before the break, I was talking about Pope Francis and his crusade against proselytism. Uh, proselytism is the most serious sin a missionary can commit. Proselytism, he said famously, is solemn nonsense. And how uh, people have uh, interpreted that as uh, proselytism in the sense, not just of convincing people of the true faith, but bullying people, trying to convert uh, people through coercion of some sort, which, of course, everyone agrees is, is not a good idea. Real conversion has to be a free choice. It has to be a, a free act of the will. But, uh, as I said, it begs the question, why is there a need for this ongoing crusade against a virtually non-existent problem? Because who in, in the Vatican II Church of today is, is bullying people into converting? And honestly, can you name a sing, single example? Or is the Pope meaning, does he really mean something else? Well, in May of this year, Pope Francis told a story. He said, I had a bad experience in this, that is proselytism. In a youth meeting some years ago, I was coming out of the sacristy, and there was a woman, very elegant, and you could see she was wealthy too, oh, darn those rich people, uh, with a boy and a girl. And this lady said to me, Father, I am unhappy because I have, or I am happy because I have converted these two. This one comes from such and such, that one comes from such and such. And I was angry, you know, and I said, you haven't converted anyone. You lack respect for these people. You have not accompanied them. You have proselytized, and this is not evangelizing. She was proud to have converted. Be careful, he said, to distinguish apostolic action from proselytism. We do not proselytize. The Lord never proselytized. So what is he saying? I mean, you have to agree that technically this woman didn't really convert these young people, although that's an ordinary way of speaking. You know, certainly it was the Holy Spirit who did the converting. But why was the future Pope so angry that there were two more Catholics in the world? Did he just assume that if someone converts to Catholicism, they must have been forced into it? I believe this is a legitimate question. Back in 2016, a group of German pilgrims, a mix of Lutherans and Catholics, came to Rome for an ecumenical event at Paul VI Hall. And Pope Francis gave a speech in which he said not word, one word about Lutherans coming into full communion with the Church, you know, what with it being an ecumenical gathering and all. That's to be expected. But after his speech, there was a Q&A session. And one question came from a 15-year-old girl from Madgeburg, which she said is 16% Lutheran, 4% Catholic, and 80% unbelievers. 
She said, My friends do not go to church, but they are my friends. Do I have to help them to go to church, or is it enough that they remain good friends? And Pope Francis answered that the, quote, last thing the girl should do is speak. He urged her to, quote, live like a Christian, like a Christian girl, chosen, forgiven, and on a path. So he advised giving a good example, all of the Franciscan axiom, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. But he didn't stop there. He said, and I quote, it is not licit that you convince them of your faith. Proselytism is the strongest poison against the ecumenical path. Not licit to convince them of the faith. So proselytism is the great sin against ecumenism. This is another direct quote from Pope Francis, by the way. But it prompts me to ask the question, is ecumenism solemn nonsense? Well, to answer that question, we have to first determine what is ecumenism. Let's go to the Catechism. Ecumenism refers to the efforts and initiatives aimed at promoting unity and dialogue among the different Christian traditions, seeking the restoration of full, visible unity among all Christians. It is the pursuit of the unity that Jesus desired for his followers, as expressed in his prayer to the Father, that they may all be one. So, you know, it's possible to suggest that um, dialogue with unbelievers isn't ecumenism at all. But you know, being that that as it may, this understanding of ecumenism is the teaching of Vatican II. Initiatives aimed at promoting unity and dialogue amongst the Christian traditions. But, and I say this without hesitation, while the, the Vatican II document on ecumenism represents the authentic magisterium of the Council and Paul VI, who ratified it, ecumenism is not a doctrine because it's, it's not a part of the deposit of faith. And so the, that uh, document is not an exercise of the ordinary magisterium, and consequently it is not infallible. Now we all know that Pope Paul VI and Benedict XVI both said that Vatican II purposely avoided making any statements with the extraordinary note of infallibility. In other words, there were no new dogmatic definitions. But Vatican II treats dogmatic subjects. And when it is restating what is contained in the deposit of faith, it represents the ordinary magisterium, which is infallible. But that does not, in fact, cannot apply to ecumenism. Hence, the Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church doesn't have a specific paragraph dedicated to ecumenism, although it speaks about it in various paragraphs, uh, 820 through 822, 2447, 2466. It does emphasize the importance of seeking unity among Christians and the, the Catholic Church's commitment to ecumenical dialogue, but it does not teach it as a doctrine because it isn't one. The Catholic Church sees ecumenism as a response to Christ's call for unity and as a means of fulfilling its mission to proclaim the gospel to all people. Uh, with with uh, all reverence to St. Francis, to use words. The Church recognizes that divisions among Christians are a source of scandal and hinder the effectiveness of the Christian witness in the world. So ecumenical efforts should involve dialogue and mutual understanding and cooperation between different Christian communities. You know, it, it's meant to overcome misunderstandings and historical divisions and, and theological disagreements in order to foster greater unity and common witness in faith, worship, and mission. 
Catholic Church encourages dialogue and collaboration with other religious or Christian churches and communities, recognizing the elements of truth and sanctification that are present in them. The Church seeks to build relationships based on respect, love, and a shared faith in Jesus Christ. So, ecumenism does not mean compromising or diluting essential Catholic beliefs. Rather, it involves seeking common ground and promoting mutual understanding and exploring ways to express unity in diversity, as they say. So, in other words, it acknowledges the diversity of traditions and liturgical practices and even theological emphases while striving for the restoration of full, visible unity. The ultimate goal of ecumenism is the visible unity of all Christians rooted in a shared faith in Jesus Christ, a common baptism, and a recognition of the essential elements of the Church. So the Catholic Church that believes that this unity is possible through the action of the Holy Spirit, the commitment of Christians to seek reconciliation and work towards full communion. So the question is, do the words full communion and visible unity refer to the Catholic Church? See, it would seem so. According to Vatican II, only the Catholic Church has the fullness of the means of salvation, and only through the Church can we know for sure what God wills us to believe and do in order to attain salvation. And it is that last word that seems conspicuous by its absence in the statements from the current pontificate. Jesus came to save us from sin and death and eternity in hell. Now, that's either worth telling people about or it's not. And the fact that it may disturb some folks is the price you pay for telling the truth. As I often say, the risk of insult is the price of clarity. But without clarity, there is no evangelization, and there is no conversion. And if any of this is antithetical to, to the current understanding of ecumenism, then it becomes plain that the real and present danger of ecumenical activity is the risk of indifferentism. The idea that one religion is pretty much as good as another, or you know that all roads lead to God, and so on. If the Pope himself considers it proselytism to invite a Lutheran or even a non-believer to come into the Catholic Church, and it goes a long way towards explaining why a long list of pre-Vatican II popes condemned ecumenism. Now, somebody once said that true ecumenism is about bringing all people into one church, and false ecumenism is about bringing all churches into one people. But worse than, than even that is the danger of embracing universalism the idea that pretty much everyone is saved, regardless of their religious beliefs or, or moral practices. Because if universalism were true, then Jesus would have died for nothing. And that's no nonsense. You know, something the Pope is fond of talking about is accompaniment. And when he railed at that woman for making converts, he said, you, you lack respect for these people, you have not accompanied them. You've proselytized. That's not evangelizing. He specifically told that German girl not to share her faith because it's not licit. Quoting now, it's not licit that you convince them of your faith. Proselytism is the strongest poison against the ecumenical path. He said that Jesus never proselytized. Well, our good Lord certainly never forced anyone to believe in him. But did he never try to convince anyone that his words were true? Did he never suggest that failing to convert would end in eternal punishment? 
Did he never say that he was, and I quote, the only way to the Father? You know, not, not a way, not the preferred way, not one way among many, but the only way? Is it, shall we say, irresponsible for a prominent churchman to su suggest otherwise? See, Pope Francis never tires about, you know, talking about the journey we're all on together, this so-called ecumenical path. Now, it sounds like a really broad road to me. And I seem to remember Jesus having something to say about that. He wanted his apostles to know exactly what all serious people want to know. Are there few who are saved? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And those who enter through it are many. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And those who find it are few in number. And that's what we'll be talking about when we return to see the flaw in the system regarding the synod on sodality and so forth. Be right back. Welcome back. I'm talking about our Lord's words. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and those who enter through it are many, but they small, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and uh, few who are that find it. Now, this theme of the of the two ways was always emphasized in the church before Vatican II. And you'll find it going all, all the way back to the Didache. Simply put, it means that one does not enter the kingdom except by a conversion of life which is making the choice to follow Jesus. The gate that leads to eternal life is called narrow because there is only one path to eternal life with God and only a comparative few decide to walk that path. Now, to be sure, we believe that God uh, grants everyone the, the necessary graces to be saved. But to believe and be baptized, that is to, to have faith and be received into the church, is the only sure way to heaven because Christ himself founded the church for our salvation to communicate the saving graces he won on the Holy Cross to a fallen world through the sacraments that he himself instituted. Living according to the demands of the Catholic faith may be a narrow road. It may not be easy. It may not be popular. But it is true and it is right. And if you don't believe that, then why are you Catholic? I believe it is antithetical to the gospel to suggest that rather than encourage people to enter by the narrow grate, as if, as if that's an offense to their dignity, we should rather accompany them down the, the broad road that leads to destruction. Consider the very next words that Jesus says after he tells us to enter by the narrow gate. He says, Be on guard against false prophets who come to you disguised in sheep's clothing, but who inwardly are ravenous wolves. By their fruits you will know them. Every good tree uh, bears good fruit, but a rotten tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by your fruits you will know them. Now, there will always be impostors. Uh, who want to exploit religious sentiments, and even the gospel itself, for their own advancement, or for the advancement of their own ideas, 
or for their personal circle. But Jesus offers a standard by which to discern true disciples. By your fruits you will know them. And just as trees are consistent in the kind of fruit they produce, good teachers consistently exhibit good behavior and, and high moral character. Now, I'm not suggesting we go on a witch hunt and try to cancel every priest and bishop and others in the Church who are less than perfect. We are all sinners. We're all obliged to show the same mercy to others that we expect for ourselves. When Jesus talks about bad trees, he's talking about teachers who deliberately teach false doctrine. That is why it is legitimate to examine the motives of those who are teaching something not contained in the deposit of faith by examining the direction they're taking, the results that they're seeking, and the results that they're obtaining. See, according to Vatican II, and going back at least to the Middle Ages, we see that it's the Catholic layman's vocation to join his work to the work of Christ by seeking to change the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of God. Uh, Father Lavazic said, if the many millions of those who do not know Christ become members of his kingdom, it will, because, it will be because intelligent and zealous lay people have sincerely and successfully tried to fulfill the vocation which is theirs. In this way, they bring about the unity of all men under God. Amen to that. And that, that just might meaning, mean using words to convince people that what Jesus said is true. And that's no nonsense. Okay. A recent study showed that 79% of uh, today's former Catholics leave the faith before the age of 23. I mean, that's a tragic statistic, you know, for the future of the Church. And it illustrates how things are breaking down at a basic level. You know, while moms and dads are more directly responsible for the formation of their children, it's clear that their parish schools and youth programs are not working effectively. And it was a similar statistic that 70% of Catholics, uh, in this case not former Catholics, but church-going Catholics, do not believe in the real presence of Christ. And that's what inspired the U.S. bishops' ongoing Eucharistic revival. Now, a Eucharistic revival, if genuine, can only be a good thing. However, um, just let, let me share something with you. Earlier this week, I got an email invitation to a special Eucharistic revival webinar. In a one-of-a-kind webinar on August 1st, Bishop Andrew Cousins of Crookston, Minnesota, will tell us what the revival means for our parishes. He will explain how special leaders called parish point persons play a key role spearheading this exciting grassroots movement. Well, the USCCB did it. They found somebody that doesn't know what a grassroots movement is. The Eucharistic Revival is first and last an initiative of the Bishop's Conference. And having a bishop introduce the next phase of their plan in a webinar where he is going to explain to us what revival means, <clears throat> a revival complete with a bureaucratic structure and, <clears throat> pardon me, special non-gender-specific nomenclature like parish point persons. You know, I just bet somebody at the ad agency got a bonus for coming up with that little alliteration. Uh, you know, this may be considered a good thing by some, but it's the very antithesis of a grassroots movement. A grassroots movement, by definition, starts at the bottom. It is not imposed from above, and there you see the flaw in the system. It's like the synod on synodality, or, or what uh, Sebastian Morello said on the European conservative blog uh, regarding Pope Francis. 
He said, it's almost as if the present Holy Father is begging to be taken seriously by the faithful for a moment as he feigns speaking to them on an equal footing. This, though, is not at all how he actually governs the church, bypassing canon law and settled theology as he pleases, and persecuting those members of the faithful who won't, so to speak, get with the program. The church is not a democracy. Truth is not a matter of popular vote. However, that this mentality has infected the lay Catholic in the pew is evident from the fact that their hierarchy is attempting to exploit it. Truth is not a matter of popular vote, but even if it were, what difference would it make if your vote isn't counted? It would be bad enough if, if the synodal movement was really what they present it to be. But experience indicates that the directors of this movement are showing all the signs of pushing a carefully orchestrated agenda, which is heading for a predetermined conclusion. Why else work so hard to silence any criticism from the one group who are not being represented, namely traditional Catholics? Mr. Morello said, um, quote, among the vocal active Catholics of the second half of the 20th century, there were broadly three factions, the progressives, the trads, and the post-conciliar neocons. That third category was dominant until the reign of Pope Francis, but the champions of the hermeneutic of continuity have, generally speaking, fallen silent. It was too difficult to keep it up. Francis has demonstrated that the post-conciliar age is an age of ecclesiastical and theological rupture, and to argue that it isn't the case has become impossible. The neocons tried to maintain their position for the first five years of Francis's papacy, attempting to render orthodox every one of his bizarre allocutions, but in the end it just became too tiring and too embarrassing. Among vocal, active Catholics, there now remain two dominant groups, the progressives and the trads. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that assessment, although it may be a fair one, <clears throat> but, but it is certainly unsustainable. The center has to hold because the far left and the far right are both headed for Shanghai. <clears throat> As Father Grishel said that as a boy, he, he looked for the point on the globe furthest away from home and discovered it was Shanghai. So he used to say that, you know, if the left keeps going left and the right keeps going right, they'll eventually wind up together in Shanghai. And if you've read my book, you know, I spent some time attending a traditionalist chapel where we did everything like they used to do in the old days, except to be the bishop, of course. And I only recently discovered that there are progressivist chapels where they have gay weddings and women priests and all the things that Father Martin dreams about, uh, just opposite uh, of the traditional chapel. And yet both are convinced that they have the true mind of the church. And they are both headed for Shanghai. You see, the fact is the hermeneutic of continuity presupposes that there's a hermeneutic of rupture. In fact, the hermeneutic of continuity is meant to correct the actual rupture that is taking place because of the hermeneutic of rupture. The hermeneutic of continuity isn't a denial of the crisis in the church. It shows how the crisis was precipitated by the flawed interpretation of Vatican II. Vatican II is its object. You cannot apply the hermeneutic of continuity to the rupture. <laughs> you can't reconcile the rupture by pretending it's compatible with the tradition. And I, I tell you right now, I believe the hermeneutic of continuity uh, interpretation of Vatican II will prevail in the end. And traditional Catholics, right, he said the trads and the progressives and the neocons. No, progressivists, traditionalists, and traditional Catholics.
right? Those who are loyal to the deposit of faith and the ordinary magisterium, those will be the ones left standing because the progressivists and the traditionalists are going to be stuck together in Shanghai. And it will be up to us, the, the loyal, faithful Catholics, both clergy and laity, to pick up the pieces of a shattered Christendom and to show to the world that the gates of hell have not prevailed against the church. And that's no nonsense. All right, so wonderful to have been with you yet again. I want to remind folks about September the 2nd and the, um, the Sacred Heart Chapel. We're going to have a, an hour of reparation for the sanctification of priests. Its uh, event starts at 12 noon. It goes until 3 p.m., and there's going to be some presentations by yours truly and Terry Barber and uh, Mary Danielle Barber, M.A., host of uh, a Bible with the Barbers. And uh, we invite you to come. It's, there's no, you don't have to register. There's no uh, um, <clears throat> admission fee or anything. It's just, just come to the church and pray with us if you are able. And also I want to mention uh, that I will be speaking at another event at Sacred Heart Chapel in October. On October the 14th, we will be having the um, Day with Fulton Sheen. And the, the fellow who wrote his doctoral dissertation on the work of Sheen and uh, Terry Barber, who has been a great promoter of Bishop Sheen now for some 40 years, and yours truly, uh, offering a convert's perspective in regard to Sheen and his presentation of the faith. Uh, it's going to be a typical kind of day-long event, and you can go... And you can actually register right now if you call the office. And we have a save the date, but we'll have all the details up very soon on vmpr.org. So I invite you to go over there, and uh, and I invite you to register for that event. I think it's $45 for a single and $80 for a married couple. A day with Fulton Sheen and our, uh, our reparation. And, of course, you may join us. Uh, every Thursday night at the Sacred Heart Chapel, every Thursday evening for um, reparation, and we'll be doing the new First Thursdays as well, or the restored First Thursdays. Until then, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>